0: I'll say something controversial. I think I stopped being a YouTuber years ago. I think I think I stopped after I think when I took a gap year, I stopped. I think I think up to that point I was trying to to not live an influencer life, but I was really doing things that were like career oriented for social media if that makes sense. And I realized that over the year off that a function that YouTube can play in my life is a secondary function where, truthfully, I'd be doing and thinking a lot of the same things if it weren't for YouTube. And that's how I want it to be. Like, I want to be reading a lot anyways. If I make a video about it, like, cool, but that's kind of auxiliary, right? That's like off to the side. I'm reading because it's valuable. I'm not reading to make a video.
1: Hey everyone, it's David. Welcome to Humans of Harvard College podcast. I hope everyone is doing well as the year wanes into March. It's an unfriendly reminder of the anniversary of quarantine for for many of us. If I may just say one thing before this podcast gets started, it's to emphasize how this pandemic has shown me, and I'm sure many of you, the importance of dialogue. We take for granted the time we spend talking to each other. I take that for granted sometimes. In this episode, I speak with someone I've never met before, never spoken to before. Yet we were able to talk intimately about our futures, our pasts, our life experiences. I think there's something to be said about that. In environments dominated by small talk, maybe it is right to go that extra distance and engage in intimate dialogue, even if it is with people you don't know. But enough of that. Today, we host someone who really doesn't need much introduction. He's a junior at the college, hailing from Canada, studying computer science and psychology. Everyone, please enjoy my conversation with John Fish. So John, I, I just really want to start off with this one question. And frankly, this is a question for my own personal use too. But um, you know, I understand that you took a gap year off, and understandably during the pandemic, yes. you you thought about taking another gap year and ultimately decided not to. And I'm wondering now, kind of halfway through, you know, start of the spring semester, reflecting on that decision and whether or not it was the right decision, what I mean. Is there anything you, you should have you could have known more to make that decision now? Obviously, it's wishful thinking at this point, and maybe it's not the healthiest way to put, mm-hmm. <laughs> think about all this. But yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, after after all of this, you know, do you think this was the best decision for for yourself, for your academics, for your career, all that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to run the counterfactual, right? It's hard to say what would have happened had I taken another year yeah. off, or had I not taken the year off in the first place. Um, I took a year off right, primarily because I wanted to grow up a little bit. I, when I came to Harvard, I was 17. And I had been working full-time over my summers since I was 14. And so I had been in this constant cycle of work, school, work, school, work, school, work, school. And I had never taken time off to be like, who is John? Like mm-hmm. this, this person that has always been there, like this personality, like who are you? You know, everything was defined externally. Um, and that was a really unhealthy way of living, I think. And, and, um, I really craved finding that identity and that's why I took a year. And, um, and I, I think I, I found a lot of that in the year off. So I, I am not upset whatsoever about taking that year. And I think it, it, accomplished its goal. Um, and then the question then is like, well, why did I come back? Right. Um, <laughs> And fundamentally, the decision came down to just looking at what courses I had left on my degree um, and seeing whether or not there was a schedule that would work out where online school wouldn't impede that and might help. So, uh, you know, computer science, I had a, had a bunch of technical classes left um, and I thought, you know what, it's not actually going to be a bad thing to take these technical classes online. In fact, it might be a good thing. Um mm. To give an example, I took, rather than taking CS-121, I took the MIT equivalent with um, with Professor Sipser, who kind of wrote, wrote a lot of this stuff, was the author on a lot of this stuff, really foundational in like the P versus NP problem. Um, and that course was taught so well. And uh, usually I wouldn't be able to take a course like that because, you know, well, I could, but it's MIT. So you have to get there and you have to get back and scheduling concerns and whatever. I probably wouldn't have taken it. Um, So in that sense, that was like a cool opportunity where I could learn from someone like, uh, like professor Sipser and uh, I might not have done that otherwise. So that's really been the focus of this year for me has been just like taking those technical classes. So now, you know, junior year wrapping up after this semester, I'll have, um, computer science done with honors. I'll have my secondary done except for one course. And then next year I can do whatever I want. So I don't regret it.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. From how I'm hearing it, it's it's definitely a, a, an optimal plan considering all the circumstances. And I, I don't know. I think what you say about working and studying since you were 14, I wonder if there's something to be said about that, about working and studying, doing all that, and yet not finding an identity. Like, does work and does study and and, and does studying or do academics contribute to finding an identity and I wonder for you looking back obviously working and studying these things have contributed to your own identity but like you said perhaps it didn't help you find yourself so I guess you know it's a very difficult kind of philosophical (laughs) question to start off but you know what part of you did you find I guess that, that you could not have ever found in academics or work
0: well so i think that for me a lot of it came down to my relationship with myself and Mm -hmm. i think a lot of my relationship with myself had to do with how i was being perceived externally as much Mm -hmm. as i would tell myself that i didn't care about external perceptions or achievements or anything like that i think a lot of people like to tell themselves that um And, but to truly kind of sit with that truth, I think very few people are there. I'm not there, you know, very (laughs) candidly. I I don't, I don't know that I know anyone who is fully detached from that, Um, but I was fully attached to it. And I think that was the function or that was the result of um, having been so tuned in for so long. I think those things contributed to my identity. Absolutely. You know, like uh, working, you know, in software, like being in school, like doing all sorts of stuff, they all contribute to my identity. Um, but without taking time to cultivate a relationship with myself and, you know, treat myself as I'm a friend and not just this kind of like object that needs to keep achieving, you know, which mm-hmm. is how I would treat myself. Um, a, a, which sounds, you know, hard to say out loud, but it's true. Yeah. Um yeah. I I think that's the aspect that I was really able to cultivate was mm-hmm. being able to talk to myself in a nice way. Um taking care of myself because I want to take care of myself, not because it's going to help me uh do better in school or achieve something better, you know, like doing it because it's it's the right thing to do for someone that you care about yourself.
1: Yeah, wow, that's so it brings a whole new definition to to self-care. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, in many ways, I'm I'm discovering that for myself, and I think a lot of students, Harvard or not, uh, feel that pressure, right, or or feel like their own body or their own soul is a vessel in which you're supposed to yep. drive, or or like a like a some sort of automaton that you're that you're supposed to command and and do all these tasks. But unfortunately, or for, sorry, no, fortunately, we are biological creatures that that have minds and and, and spirit. So, um, but it's funny that you brought up like external perception because, you know, as well, you're a very seasoned content creator. I'm, I'm barely starting out here, but as content creators, you know, we kind of signed this social contract to say that we're putting ourselves out there. Right. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and for, for your brand of YouTube channel, especially, you know, you're, you're basically engaging with intimate dialogue with your subscribers, every video, right. As like a, like a personal friend, and obviously, a lot of your life has been out there online. Um, and, and I wonder what you think about that. And and has that ever reached a point where it has either bothered you or or made it feel nice? Um, I know to some people, personal, like that boundary between personal and public life is extremely important. But as content creators, that, that line becomes very, very hazy. Um, and I wonder if you've experienced that, too.
0: For me... I draw the line at relationships. And I'm really careful with that. I, if I'm dating someone, or even like a lot of my close friends, I, I try and keep relationships offline as much as possible. Even with my friends that are content creators who have their lives online. I think I see a lot of friendships and a lot of relationships that are really healthy and then they go online and they're horrible um and it's a function of being over analyzed by you know tens hundreds thousands tens of thousands hundred like so many people have something to say now about your relationship and about you and how how good you guys are together how they don't deserve you <laughs> you know how you could be doing so much better and it's like it's one of those things again where it's like oh no i don't read the comments i don't care about that stuff but how would you put yourself in a position to read that? You know, I think there are certain things that I think are, are, are best kept offline and, and relationships are that for me. Um, mm-hmm. but I think ideas are something that I'm very cool sharing with the world as, you know, intimate as they can be. Um, I think it's, it's something that like that benefits from that dialectic process where people question you and they push you. And, um, and I think that's the type of thing that you want. Um, relationships can benefit from that when you know the person on the other side and you trust them and you know if you know my mom tells me hey you know this girl you're seeing and i'll listen to her it's not that i have to be all alone but strangers on the internet maybe not so but with ideas i think strangers on the internet are, are great to listen to
1: something oh yeah yeah i absolutely love that mission statement you know the the democratization of knowledge you know it's it's a very it's a very noble cause and so noble in fact that you know, one of your videos has actually influenced my way of, of doing things. And that, that's, I'm I'm sure many people can relate to this too, but that's, that's on the topic of reading. Um, I think you're, I mean, you've made a, you've made plenty of videos on, on reading, and I'm sure that's, that's definitely been, um, a centerpiece of your own life during the gap year too. But, you know, prior to really getting to know more about reading, especially the way you frame it, right? I, I had an experience, well, sorry, I had a relationship with reading that's, it's kind of like an ex-wife you know you (laughs) you uh you have moments of passion you find each other for moments and then you remember how you hate each other again and it just breaks apart and you know for me it's reading is a long history has a long history of trauma in middle school Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um i'm curious uh, in in canada did you guys have uh like accelerated reading programs or like like systems were that, that incentivized you to read like point systems, stuff like that. Did did, did you have that at all?
0: Yeah, that was more an elementary school thing. So uh, uh, I I okay. went K to six and then we had seven, eight and then nine through 12. Um, And so like the K to six had that where kindergarten and I think really only up until grade three, we had like these, you know, reading points and you get points for reading pages and whatever. And then it just became assignments after that.
1: Mm, yeah yeah and obviously that didn't lend well at least speaking personally that didn't really lend well to the quote-unquote love of reading because uh you know you you naturally remove some of the magic of any activity when it becomes an assignment um it's like you you know when your parents tell you to do the dishes when you were planning on doing them anyways you know you lose that magic of propriety (laughs) i think (laughs) uh, when someone else tells you to do something but in any case uh you know you were you were very forthcoming with your advice on on reading and and really embracing like having dialogue with with what you read and, and and all that and really i i kind of found reading in a much new light especially when i considered books that you should read and books that you wanted to read mm. uh and i kind of want to explore that idea with you because you know you know in high school for for, for me at least you know th- there were the should reads you know the 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 Pride and Prejudice, uh, Catcher in the Right. And don't get me wrong. There's a reason why there's the should reads, right? They're they're great works of classical literature. But nonetheless, though, I think intention has a lot to do with this, mm. right? Uh, why are you reading this? Is it for class? Is it for whatever? Or is it for your own enjoyment? Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you too, like, it, well, first of all, do you even believe that there's this dichotomy of should and want between what you read and more whether or not you believe in that kind of thought.
0: I think there are, um, there are people that will tell you these are books that you should read. And mm. I think people, because of authority power dynamics, you might listen to them, right? So Bill Gates, right? You might, Bill Gates' <laughs> top 10 books that you need to read before you die. You might look right. at that and be like, okay, this is a definitive top 10 list. Or I think Harvard actually had a list of like the hundred most important books. Um, That was a school sponsored thing they did back in the early 20th century. Um, I think the Mm -hmm. president of Harvard wanted to fit kind of the great works of humankind on one bookshelf. And they did this whole project with that. Um, Honestly, I think, I think, I think with reading The most important thing i think is curiosity and i think that's like such an important thing that just gets absolutely beat out of you in school in elementary school and when things become assignments and it's over analyzing you know why was there this eye on the on the billboard in the great gatsby and you spend 40 minutes talking about the eye on the billboard and it's like this is this this is such a cool book there's so much that you can relate to in real life with this and there are so many questions you can ask about your life And you're asking me about a billboard. Like, I don't care. Reading is stupid is what you get out of that. Um, Mm. And I think that's so sad, you know? So I think the best way to feed that curiosity is by reading what you want. And I think when you start to realize how many books are out there and how cool some of them are, you know, like literally any topic you can think of by the top people in all of those topics, they've written books. And you can read about their lives and their work, and you can engage with it, and you can ask questions about your life. And I think as young people, that's the ultimate privilege to be able to have, because we have all these questions, right? What do I want to do with my life? What am I going to do? What's my purpose here? And to be able to consult people who have struggled with those questions and come to radically different conclusions over decades of their lives, brilliant, brilliant people, and to be able to consult that in an afternoon or a week, like, how awesome is that, mm. you know? So I actually think that eventually, if you're reading the books that you want, and you're reading enough, I think you'll get to the books that you should read. And what I, and that's like the books that you truly should read, you know, because it, it really mm. makes no sense, I think, for 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 someone who has, let's say, you know, I'll give computer science as an example, right? there are, there are seminal works in computer science that you should read, you know, like stuff by Alan Turing, whatever, that's more papers, not books, but the same thing applies. But if you're not interested in computer science, should you really go through the top 10, the top 100 papers in computer science, like, because they're on a list somewhere? Or if you just follow what you want, are you eventually going to find your way to the works that are important to you? And I think this is like, this is one of my favorite ways to read and to choose books is when I enjoy a book, I look for the books that it references because all great authors reference other books and you start to notice that where it's like, mm. oh, this author's saying like, this is a book that they learned from, or here's a citation from this book. I'm going to look that up. And then you kind of get this cascade of interest. And eventually I think you end up at, at least in my experience over the last few years, I've, I've ended up at some of these books that end up on these top 10 books that you should read. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's starting from a position of, I'm going to read what I'm interested in. And then eventually you end up at some of those top 10 lists and you're like, oh yeah, you know, that's a great (laughs) book. It belongs there. Um, Mm -hmm. rather than starting at those lists and being like, I'm going to build my general education from the, from the top down.
1: I absolutely love that. Right. It's in the end, at the end of the day, you reach the same destination or, or you most likely will reach the same destination, but it's about how you reach there. That really matters right you can either consort <laughs> consult the top 10 list and get to that book or you go through the lengthier but much obviously much more fulfilling method of you know reading the works that you're interested in that that, that naturally lead to those and i absolutely agree with that yeah um yeah and, and yeah. you get more out of it too
0: like if you if you just start if the first book that you read is this hyper advanced you know like philosophy, like really dense, you know, maybe you're reading like, I don't know, some like Aristotelian logic stuff. It's like, you're reading this because you think it's important and because someone told you that it's important. But in reality, if you read a bunch of books leading up to that, and then eventually it referenced Aristotle and it's like, by the way, uh, this is like horribly obtuse. And, you know, here's what you should be looking for in it. And here's what I extracted from it, because authors will contextualize uh, the works that they're citing. Then you're reading that book now with so much more context, and you actually are understanding what you're trying to get out of it, rather than just being like, "Oh, it's Aristotle." Like I know that name; it's important, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, there's obviously benefits to this process. But one thing that that really stood out to me, especially when you said it, was that. And and I know you study psychology too, so I don't know if this has come across your studies too. But you mentioned how reading. Um, actually changes the way you think. And you, and you talk about mm-hmm. how how being on the phone and, and being on these types of social media platforms that really prioritize the fast-paced way of thinking, like TikTok, right? Vine, I think, is like the perfect embodiment of this concept. <laughs> Frankly, it died, but still, the six-second thing, right? It, it made so much sense. But like you say, when you started reading, it it takes on a whole different way of thought. And um, I actually did like a, not a test. Uh, you know, there's obviously no good experimental grounds for this but you know I would normally I would spend like the last few moments of of my night on my phone and um y- y- you know just 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 browsing stuff and obviously that's the that's the kind of social media platforms that um don't require too long of a, a attention span and instead you know the past few days I've kind of replaced that with like reading so so reading for the last half an hour and I found that um I don't know, for for some reason, I can think in longer sentences now. <laughs> which feels so messed up, right? It's it's kind of like uh it's scary, first of all, how much your mind changes depending on the types of media that you, you consume. But um Yeah, I was wondering if you can speak more on that, and and especially as you as your reading picked up, whether or not you felt these kind of psychological, physiological changes uh are in you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you have to be careful sometimes, or I I try and be careful when I talk about some of this stuff in that when people talk about social media, there's a lot of youth bashing that goes on. And I, I like that term a lot. Um, it's, <laughs> it's like a lot of people see social media as this kind of evil thing. Um, mm-hmm. and this thing that's destroying minds and, you know, destroying a generation and I think I think that is just such a such a vast oversimplification. Um and so I I have to be careful then when I'm when I'm talking about this stuff to kind of preface it with I, I don't think social media is destroying a generation. I, I think social media has done wonderful, like absolutely wonderful things um for some people. And yet we also use it in really kind of unhealthy ways sometimes. And um and they're pretty well studied, right? And this is when the, when I when I take psychology classes, I always end up at this, like the psychology classes that I have taken, usually they have like a final paper and I always like to talk about social media in them because it's the thing that interests me the most. Um, and and so I, I actually, the, my, my last psychology class I took last semester was abnormal psych, um, PSY-18. And um, I was writing about nighttime social media use. So it's, it's really interesting that you bring that up and oh, yeah. there we go um yeah yeah and and it's 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 interesting how uh there there are the the experimental designs are are really rough when it comes to measuring anything with social media and mental health you're looking at a lot of kind of associational stuff that is hard to draw causation from um and you know social media in general is just like a really ill-defined term so when you say social media, you might be talking about TikTok. When I say social media, I might be talking about Instagram. When someone else, they might be talking about Reddit. Someone else, they might be talking about YouTube. And is it fair to treat all these things in the same way? Did they all have the same effect on our brain? And even within platforms, if I'm using Instagram to look at nature photos, and you're using it to look at uh, models who you are, you know, desperately wishing you looked like, is it fair to treat that in the same way? Right? And and I, I think the answer is just a resounding no. And yet that's what a lot of the literature looks at. And that's what a lot of people, when they're talking about social media, look at. So I try and be really careful in talking about specific behaviors um, because we know what specific behaviors, we know certain specific behaviors are really bad for you. Um, the, the primary one is social comparison. The one that I was talking about, like looking at models and and you know comparing yourself to them. Um, that's one that affects primarily adolescent uh, adolescent girls, and it's been horrible for their mental health. And you can see, um, crazy shifts, uh, w- as social media has, um, picked up. And as it, as it's uh, become more prevalent, you can see shifts in depression, anxiety, um, suicidality. Um, and a lot of that can be attributed to social comparison. Um, and another thing it, like I said, it is nighttime social media use, um, or just screen use, and Uh, Part of that can actually be attributed to like the the physical setting, blue light, Um, blue light disruption. um, We know that if you're exposed to blue light, it will, um, it'll, it'll shift your circadian rhythm. It'll shift your sleep. And so you'll have a harder time getting to sleep. Um, And, uh, and, and that's been pretty well studied. Uh, And, and with that also though, we see different types of social media behavior at night, um, And we see social media being used, and this is, I think, the most important thing. Um, It's often when people talk about the relationship between social media and mental health, which is hard to ignore. People who have anxiety, who have depression, use social media a lot more. A lot of people talk about it in one direction. They talk about um, social media causes anxiety and depression. But what I think is fascinating as well is to look at the, the reverse causal direction and say, Are there people that are using social media as a coping mechanism for anxiety and depression? And when you look into the studies behind that, you find a bunch of literature on on compensatory social media use, which is the idea of using social media um, in situations where you're anxious, where you're feeling depressed, et cetera. Um, And then that creates a, a feedback loop which ultimately makes you feel more anxious and more depressed. And so that's how I think about it. Um, mm-hmm. so I think, uh, to sum it up, you know, social media can be very good if you use it really well and it can be really bad if you use it poorly. Um, right. using it at night, generally a bad idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, that the hard way. um, but also, but using it, you know, during the day in, in the wrong ways, using it as a crutch, um, or using it, uh, using it just for negative behaviors is a, is a bad thing too. Um mm-hmm. but again to reiterate there's so much good that happens on social media.
1: No no yeah of course it's it's frankly it's it's kind of like the same question I asked you at the very beginning about what would have happened if this and it's hard to imagine the world without social media and obviously it's it's social capital and social good but if I may and to preface this as well I'm not a psych Expert or concentrator or CS concentrator. Me neither. I
0: just take like <laughs> courses here and there when they fit.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. But um, I think when we talk about Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, all these programs, obviously they they operate very differently. But I think there is a unifying factor, and, and that ultimately is like the purpose or their business model, uh, and and that's to monetize your attention, mm-hmm. right? Um, advertisements, obviously. So their their business model incentive is to keep you on the app as long as possible or as or as engaged as possible so that uh, advertisers feel comfortable putting in money to, to put their brand in um, and I wonder if that if you if, if if you frame it like that if you frame like what is the kind of fundamental profit motive for every one of these platforms I wonder if that also plays into like whether or not we see social media as you know if, is their social good a byproduct of of their uh, of, of their whole campaign or, or, or existence and is because of their profit motive, do we see the downsides kind of as a direct descendant?
0: Yeah. I, I, motive? I've talked about this, uh, actually at length, I, I started writing a book about it. Um, but I want to keep writing. Um, I haven't touched it in a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think you're dead on. I think, I think what we're seeing a lot of in social media right now is there was a period of rapid growth through realistically, you know, 2008 through 2014 maybe was the period of most rapid growth. If I was spitballing. Um, but in, in that kind of era, you had people that weren't on Facebook, weren't on Twitter, weren't on Instagram, um, that were learning about it and installing it. And so during that time you have this massive rise in, uh, in capital that can be converted into, into money. Um, through ads, right? Because you have all this attention that's now coming into your platform simply as a result of new users. But after a certain point, right, you run out of users. And this has happened to Facebook, where they're no longer really growing in North America and Europe. And sure, they're turning to, to uh, countries where fewer individuals are, are on their platforms. They're usually on other social media platforms at this point. Um, but they're valued at such crazy multiples. Um, you know, they're, they're trading multiple, like many multiple times revenue, um, and they're public companies. They're, they're, they're incentivized to continue growing, and they have to grow really rapidly. And so, well, how do you continue growth with that, with that economic model? You either have to uh, get more time out of your current users, or you have to, to make that time somehow more valuable, which is against the best interest of the advertisers. Advertisers want to keep ad costs low. And so what we see are a lot of these features, which are developed to get more time out of users and to get more attention out of users. So if you think back to uh, when chronological timelines used to be a thing, right? Twitter, Facebook, they both used to be chronological. And when you get to the end of your, your uh, posts, you know, you see a post you'd already seen, you know that it's over, it's done, you know? Then they started mixing it up because it increased engagement and it kept people on their timelines longer when you could throw in, you know, here's a post from an hour ago. Here's one from 13 hours ago. Here's someone you might like, right? They started to throw recommendations in there. And this has increased vastly the amount of time that people spend on their timelines. And as a result, the amount of ads that you can see and the amount of revenue brought in per user, which they have to keep increasing. And you know the question is at what point does this become malicious? At what point are you preying on individuals' attention? And for for users, you know, for everyday people that are using social media, the question is at what point is the trade off no longer worth it? At what point are you giving so many hours to these platforms that you uh, that you can no longer justify um, using them in that way? So my whole framework with this has has been. Um, to, it's a, it's a framework of intentional attention. That's how I phrase it. And it's the idea of thinking really carefully about which activities are valuable to you on social media. Um, for me, a lot of that boils down to messaging. I'm only on Facebook for messaging. I don't use timelines. I don't use groups. I don't use page. I use nothing except for messaging on Facebook. Um, Instagram is evolving to that same point, actually, now for me, I, I pretty much only use it for for DMs. I'll look at stories and posts occasionally, but, um, but all of these features, like the browse features are really scary because they can just take <laughs> hours from you like that and you get nothing back except for like a little hit of serotonin. And that's cool sometimes, <laughs> like sometimes that's what you need. Sometimes you just need some entertainment, totally fine. Um, but all day, every day, that'll crush you.
1: I mean, it's it's amazing how uh, how self aware you are with 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 all this, and I mean, it, this goes to show in kind of everything that you've been talking about so far, um, but also it, it appears in your, your your videos. And I wonder, obviously, you're not born being hyper self introspective, but I wonder if there was a moment in your life that that introspection really became something that you yourself were aware of and able to do, because, um, like you said, right, you, you started working at a i mean pretty much the legal minimum right 14 and with that comes kind of the natural growth and development of of adulthood uh at least in terms of work and i wonder as well because because mat- along with maturity i think comes with self-reflection and self-introspection um, and i was wondering if we if we if you, you don't mind taking a taking a ride down memory lane and and speak about like do you remember a time when you felt that this was really a turning point for me to be mature or kind of embrace self-reflection or maybe it was the YouTube channel that really blew that up. I don't know. So yeah, I mean, yeah,
0: I I mean, I think like all things it's a process um, that I've been engaged in for a long time. Um, If I, if I had to put a pin on it, I was a weird kid. Like I I, um, (laughs) was like introverted and uh, I didn't like school. I I really didn't like school um, in elementary school. And it's mostly because I thought it was dumb and it was dumb. Like realistically, <laughs> it was like, you know, do a word search, do this, do that. And then when you finished it, it was, what are you going to do now? Like, oh, look at this book, right? This like picture book. Um, and I hated that. I thought that was dumb. So I never wanted to go to school. Um, what I did want to do was sit there and like play with magnets and stuff. I love magnets. Um, <laughs> and I had these like vibrating magnets that you'd pull apart and you'd like they'd come back together and they'd vibrate when they did that. Those are so cool.
1: Oh, were they oblong shaped? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. I know exactly you what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so I, I, but I would just, I could play with magnets and like, I, I had all these like weird, like science kits that I would just play with for hours. Um, and I think, you know, sitting with yourself, you, you start to build this more kind of introspective habit. Um. But then also throughout my life, uh, I've just been put in situations where I've, I've been put in humbling situations, I'll say, Um, in that I'm someone who like naturally tends towards having an ego, um, like being relatively arrogant. And that used to be true a lot more than it is now. Like I was pretty insufferable as a, as a kid Um, and I got into uh, a gifted class because um, I was a weird kid. I didn't like school. And they were like, well, he's doing well in school, so let's put him in a gifted class. And, you know, that's that's tends to be where those kids end up. Um, but I wasn't smart in the class. I was near the bottom of the class. Like, I was a pretty, pretty bad student. Um, and that's a weird thing to go through, I think, when you, like, go from a position of, oh, I'm too smart for this, like these are word searches and whatever. And then they're like, okay, here's a real project and you do it and you suck. And you're like 12 and you're like, man, <laughs> these, these other kids are so much smarter than me. Uh, I got to pull it together. And yeah. I don't know. I, I went through a few experiences like that, I think. Um, and I think that that's the type of thing that, that fosters um, introspection is when your, your identity uh, gets blown up in your face and you have to you, or your perception of your identity and you have to kind yeah. of like question you know who who am I actually and and what is it uh, who do I want to be as well you know and mm. and who have i who have I been right to answer the question who do I want to be? I think you first have to answer the question who you are um, uh, otherwise there's no way to develop a path to becoming that person that you want to be right because if you don't have a starting point, how do you get to the end? you know? Right. Um, and so I think my life has been full of a lot of those. I want to be this person. I want to be this person. I want to be this person. Um, and that's forced me along the way to figure out I am this person. I am this person. I am this person.
1: You know, it's, it's really fascinating that you brought up. Well, first of all, I appreciate the candidness with, with who you were. And, and, and obviously now that you're grown and different, were there any mentors, like besi- obviously besides parents, besides relatives, or, or actually maybe relatives, but um, that that got you into the interest that now, I mean, I know you started coding at a young age. I also know, like you said, you started work pretty early. I mean, who who was there to kind of tell you that that was okay and that was something that despite age, despite experience, was absolutely okay to pursue?
0: Yeah. Um, so the the first... The first really good teacher that I had was in that gifted class. Her name uh, was Ms. Reist. Um, Mm. We're still kind of in touch to this day, actually. And she's the best teacher that uh, I think, you know, on the planet. Um, (laughs) Incredibly lucky to be in that class. Um, And because she had a way of, 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 of not not going easy on you when you weren't doing the work that you should be doing. So we had these three major projects throughout the year. They were called iSearch projects where they're independent research projects, which in grade five is like, you know, pretty cool. Like that's, you know, (laughs) that's pretty neat. Um, And I remember I did one of mine on the first one that I did was on the 1900 Olympics, which was like, the second year, the the second kind of modern Olympics. And it was like, you know, absolutely horrible. Um, it was like a huge mess. A bunch of events were all over the place, got canceled and so on. And I think I handed in maybe like three pages or something. And we were supposed to have been working on this for months. And I remember I got my grade back and it was, it was out of four. Uh, we used to do this grading system. It corresponds to a four is an A, A, three is a B, a, a two is a C mm-hmm. one is a D. Right. Um, and I got a three minus, so a, a B minus and everyone else, like she was not a hard grader, you know, everyone else kind of three plus four minus four, four plus, like, and I deserved it, you know? And, and that was like a moment where I was like, oh man, I, I actually, I, I sucked. I kind of, I half asked this, and you called me out for it. And we had a conversation about it. And she's like, look, I think, I think you can do a whole lot better than that. Um, so she was a, a an amazing mentor. Um, my dad has been a really, really fantastic mentor to me throughout my life, um, particularly in high school. He was actually a, a, a physics teacher at the high school that I went to. And mm. I, I never, I never needed to be, um, to be pushed that much to do things uh I, I I was very competitive. I I would run like on my own, like running track. That was that was a huge thing that I would do. Um with school, I was very competitive and so on. So it was never it was never motivating me in that sense. It was more like reminding me that if I didn't, you know, get a hundred, it wouldn't be the end of the world. And he he used wow. to really like reinforce the idea of having fun. And And treating school as if it's a game, and like staying curious and enjoying it, right? Like like figuring out the ways that you can make this process of studying, taking tests, doing projects. how can you like turn that into something fun? And as someone who hated school at first, you know, I thought it wasn't fun at all because it wasn't. and school at face value, I think, for most teachers isn't fun. Um, but if you can learn to bend the rules just a little bit, You can make it really fun for yourself. And (laughs) and that's the thing. I still try and do that to this day because some classes at Harvard are not fun, but if you bend the rules a little
1: bit, it's fun. Okay. Well, okay. Okay. Well, okay. It, It seems like we're talking about this, this wonderful, wonderful golden secret formula here. Do you mind, do you mind elaborating a little bit? Like what do you mean by bending the rules here?
0: Like sometimes it means going above and beyond and I think that's counterintuitive to people who think, like, if you have an assignment, right, and your assignment is, you know, uh, I don't know, write, write some essay about, you know, this book, and it's a boring book, but you find a way that you can connect that to something that you really care about in your life, and then you say to your professor, like, hey, would it be okay if I actually wrote a comparative essay? or if I analyze this through the lens of this thing that I really care about. And, you know, like, for example, with my psychology classes, right? I'm not particularly interested in uh, psychology at at face value, you know, especially like neurobio stuff like that. It just doesn't excite me. But when I bring in the context of social media and how that's affecting our brains, suddenly it becomes so fun for me. Like suddenly I can, because I can relate to it and I can be like, Oh, yeah, that happened to me. You know, when I go on my phone at night, yeah, I feel pretty I feel pretty gross. Um, and that means, you know, going into non-obvious topics and, and finding intersections that aren't at the surface. But if you can do that, the end result is so much more fun and the process is so much more fun. Um, and I, I think you can you can generally pull that off in, in technical classes as well. Um, for me in a lot of my technical classes, um, that I didn't enjoy as much, I am more of a, of an application of an application type of guy. I, you know, I like code, um, theories, fun, I guess, but it doesn't get those gears turning as much as, as seeing something physical. I love making things. And mm. so in a lot of my theory classes, what I'll do is I'll write code that backs up that theory. Right. Like I'll 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 do one of the I'll do an example Um, if we're, you know, we're writing about Turing machines, for example, like and we're we're doing these proofs with Turing machines and so on. You know, I'll, I'll write a Python class for a Turing machine and then I'll play with that and I'll get this this understanding. And yes, I had to maybe do an extra hour of work, but suddenly it's this process that I'm engaged in and I'm curious about and I can play with, whereas before it was just something that I was reading in a textbook. So that's how I kind of turn things into games. And ultimately, I think, I think it, it's less work um, because I think if you actually engage like fully the first time that you're doing something, and, and this is my, my thought process with studying as well, um, you only really need to do it once, right? Like if you're fully engaged, you learn it and it's kind of in your brain and it will be there for a long time. And you have great mental objects that you can map that back onto when you're being tested or when you have to refer back to it. But if you're not engaged and you're just kind of like getting this shallow repetition memory in your head, then you'll have to study it for the, for the first time you do it, the content, you'll have to study it for the midterm, for the final. And if you ever want to refer to it again, you're going to have to study it again. Um, so I think it's way more time efficient in the end. Um, even though you might spend an hour or two uh, kind of making it, making it this interactive process.
1: Yeah. And you know i don't think this is i i I definitely agree with with i mean this kind of application i mean frankly i think that's how all education should be framed especially at the k-12 level but i wonder as well i mean this is kind of very true for the college level when you're doing so many things when you're taking classes when you're part of these organizations or even if you work or or do all of this sometimes it, it it feels like you you just need to do the Minimum or do the bare minimum and get by mm. and, and stuff like that and and this subject has been brought up multiple times on this podcast, but but the culture of being busy, and obviously we're all limited creatures. We have a limited amount of just energy we can expend per day per week per activity. you know, if you're doing so many things, and I'm not saying like you specifically, but like people, right? if people do so many things and not have the space potentially to do like what you say to go above and beyond. Is that, is that like harmful or or maybe have you experienced that where you just feel like you're adding on so many obligations that at the end of the day, you're kind of just ticking off the boxes and not like you say, finding that extra little step to make it that much more worthwhile.
0: Yeah. I've found myself in those situations and I, and I don't do well in them and, um, I need to find a way to get out of them usually. Um, and that usually means cutting commitments for me because. And, and, and I think in the, in the college context, um, cutting commitments can feel hard. And then when you do it, it's, it's really usually not that big of a deal. And I'm, I'm mostly referring to extracurricular commitments here, um, or, or, uh, or, or class level commitments. Um, one of the commitments that I had to, to cut, for example, was, uh, a 4.0, right? I made this hilariously titled <laughs> video in freshman year, yeah. um, but I, but I had to really look look at myself and say, you know, um, I am spending all of my hours and all of my energy on achieving good grades, and, and they were good, and I, <laughs> I didn't get anything out of it, and I wasn't going to get anything out of it. I didn't really want to go to grad school, um, and so I kind of thought, you know what? If I want to have fun, I'm going to have to get worse grades sometimes. And fun, not in the sense of, oh, I'm going to go out and party, do this and do that. Fun in the sense of like, I'm going to actually engage in the stuff that I'm doing and not just make sure that I ace all of my problem sets and make sure that I am reading the content ahead of lecture. Um, and that, that can be a, that can be a tough sacrifice for a lot of people. It was, it was tough for me. Um, and, and, but it was worthwhile for me. So it, I, I agree, you know, a hundred percent. It's something that, um that not everyone can do in, in college. Um, and it's not gonna be a priority of everyone in college. Um, but it was a huge priority of me or for me.
1: that I wanted to bring up, which is I think you alluded to this plenty of times, but family right i'm I'm curious what drove you to work at such a young age and and pursue that was it like you said, competitiveness, and what was your family's role when you made these kinds of decisions, including the one where you took a gap year?
0: Yeah, no, it's i I love my family my family's awesome um <laughs> and uh so with with working as a fourteen year old how that actually evolved is pretty funny in Ontario. Um, actually I'll, I'll start before that. Um, as a kid, I would go to all sorts of camps over the summer. Um, I would go to like chef camp. I learned how to cook, um, which is super useful by the way. Everyone should send their kids to like a a chef camp or something. You learn knife (laughs) skills, you learn all basic recipes, and then that's with you for life. Like you, it's so useful knowing how to cook, just fantastic. Um, but I'd go to science camps and I'd go to arts camps and stuff. Um, but the science camps were the ones that really stood out to me. And, and um, I, made, I made kind of friends with some of the counselors there and at, at our local university, University of Waterloo. Um, and then in Ontario, you need to have uh, volunteer hours in high school. Um, you need to have 40 total volunteer hours um, by the end uh, of your high school experience. And that can be with anyone. It can be at any kind of community. Um, uh, it can be at a charity. Um, and I decided to volunteer with the science camp that I went to, um, they had a, a a program for high school volunteers where you'd kind of watch over, uh, some of the younger kids. Um, and I, I had a blast. It was so fun being this high school volunteer. I, I stole some kind of physics outreach stuff from my dad. He has these black boxes, um, that they're a little hard to describe in audio, but (laughs) you can look up black boxes, Perimeter Institute really cool stuff um Mm -hmm. and i I would show these to the kids and they they loved them and and the the administrators of the camp loved me um because i was you know i had these science gadgets and kids loved them and whatever so they said you know we'd love to have you back as a as a as a counselor and we'll pay you next year um because they would hire high school counselors as well as as take volunteers um And so that was like, I, when I was 13, I did the volunteering. And then when I was 14, I went and I, and I, uh, was a paid high school volunteer or paid high school, um, counselor. And so I started at a science camp and, um, and that was such a cool experience for me. Um, I think, you know, teaching is, is, and communication about science. Like that's, I think so important, um, and not just about science, but just about ideas in general. Um, and that to this day is is so important to me. Um, and so that was really cool. And and the the leaders of that of that program, it's called ESQ Engineering Science Quest. Um, they, you know, me and another one of the counselors, uh, we did an after school program after that. We did like an after school robotics program with them, and, and they really kind of bought into all of this. And it's cool now because actually some of the some of the kids that I was counseling uh are getting into university. And they're starting to message me and be like, hey, you know, that after school camp that you ran uh, with Eric, the robotics thing. Well, guess what program I'm taking? Like, I'm in mechanical engineering. I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's that was the first job. And that was like and, you know, so, again, credits to my dad in, in large part for that being a science teacher. Um, mm-hmm. But no, my my family has been incredibly, incredibly supportive. Um throughout the years with, with all of the kind of decisions that I've made um, going to America from Canada. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Especially like right after Trump was elected was a little bit scary. Like people didn't really know what the, at least in, in Canada, people didn't really know what the, what the situation was going to be like, how, how stable it was going to be, whatever. Um, right. I remember my, uh, I had some family members worried about that. Um, but they've trusted me taking time off from school. They trusted me, you know, um, it's, it's a lot of trust. Um, and I know that I always have them that, you know, if I, if I, if I need to fall back on something, they're, they're always there with open arms and, and I,
1: I really love them. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also great, great hearing that your first ever job was, was so fulfilling. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of like service jobs too, cause I have plenty of friends back home whose first job was, were service jobs. And, Let's, let's just say that their, their description of their first job was definitely not what you described when you were, when yeah. you were 14. <laughs> not, not the same. Have you ever worked at like a service-oriented job before at all? No,
0: I haven't. I went from working at that camp to then working in software. I made a, I made a right. pretty big jump um, in high school, <laughs> um, right. which was cool. Uh, again, like, I got super lucky with a lot of this stuff. Um, where it was like, you know, I, I randomly went to this camp that ended up having the coolest administrators ever who are willing to hire a 14 year old as a counselor when, you know, other camps might only hire 16 plus. And then like, I found this really cool company that at the time wasn't that big. Now it's huge. Um, Shopify. Um, I, uh, I worked for them in high school as a software developer. Um, and uh and that i worked for them for a few summers actually after that um right so that's kind of that was the career progression i was on um before youtube um Mm -hmm. so i got i got really lucky with
1: that um yeah 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 well that's it's crazy why shopify i mean that's a that was a great time to to start working at shopify yes they um, paid me in stock man oh boy <laughs> oh right oh wow. they did oh, not my. uh they paid oh. me in cash uh, <laughs>
0: okay.
1: did you get any stock incentive from that
0: no i mean interns generally don't um oh that makes sense it's yeah. very very rare that interns do i wish it was more common i think it would kind of make sense um but uh but no but yeah i remember the stock price was like Twenty dollars, or at one oh point that I was working God. there, and I looked at it the other day. It was like fourteen hundred dollars or something. I was like, "Man, that's crazy." So oh, yeah,
1: yeah, they've blown yeah. up. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, it's it's wish stock. If anything, I mean, I'm I'm not too familiar with the stock market, and I know everyone was gonna have a, is gonna have an opinion on the stock market after the past few weeks. But <laughs> I think wishful thinking is probably the most dangerous, dangerous behavior <laughs> when it comes to stock market. Oh and yeah, and there's no way
0: I would have held it that long, like for sure.
1: speaking of career trajectories and and maybe ending this off mm-hmm. with a more future-minded discussion because you know do you see yourself ever i mean do you see an end to youtube or an end to any of your current uh uh projects initiatives endeavors um or or do you or do you see these i mean as of now right a very permanent fixture in in your professional life
0: um you know <laughs> i'll say something controversial i think i stopped being a youtuber years ago um i think i think i stopped um after i think when i took a gap year i stopped i think i think up to that point i was trying to to not live an influencer life, but I was really doing things that were like career oriented for social media, if that makes sense. Mm. And I realized that over the year off that a function that YouTube can play in my life is a secondary function where truthfully I'd be doing and thinking a lot of the same things if it weren't for YouTube. And that's how I want it to be. Like I want to be reading a lot anyways. If I Mm. make a video about it, like cool but that's kind of auxiliary right that's like off to the side i'm reading because it's valuable i'm not reading to make a video um sometimes i have video ideas and i'm like oh that's cool like i'm gonna do that for a video you know um but for the most part it's just something that is like in the background um and it's it's cool from a financial perspective from a career perspective because um i can do it in the background and it and it can be um, you know, it it can sustain me. Right. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's like, again, some i I'm so lucky, you know, like that's, a, that's a crazy thing. Um, in terms of like long-term career ambitions, I think there's so many things that I'd love to do with my life. Like, I think there's just like, you know, there's endless possibilities. And so I think it would be fun. The first thing that I think would be really fun that comes to mind right now is, um, is authorship i think writing is like my mom has a a, has a history of being an author and and she works in in that world um so i've been around that a little bit and i think it's a really natural transition for me from like youtube um where i spend a lot of time wrestling with ideas and communicating ideas in relatively long-form content for social media Um, In a world of 30 second videos or six second videos, as you alluded to with Vine um, and certain TikToks, um, you know, I'm making like 10 minute videos. That's the world of YouTube. So it's relatively long form. But I I would really like to push myself to go even even longer form and and say, you know, could I write a book? Like, what would that look like? Um, So I've I've played with that um, here and there. And I think that's something I'd love to do after college. So. Mm -hmm who knows beyond that, you know, I think, I think back like two years ago um, or three years ago or whatever. And it was like, I thought I was going to be a software developer. I thought I was going to, you know, run a tech company and I might do both of those things still. Like I I have a computer science degree that I'm actively pursuing. The world, (laughs) you know, the the world is a crazy place. It changes
1: very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and as a, as a first year, I very much appreciate that perspective. I think I myself need need to need to th- think a little bit more broadly too. Um but yeah, I mean I first of all, I actually really like your perspective on that YouTube thing because I mean, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but do you see YouTube now more as a video diary of sorts or a place where you can kind of you know, engrave your your thoughts and and like you say of course share them too, right? Is it do you see it like that or do you still see it more as something that educational right um, is it therapeutic maybe in any sense
0: yeah i see it as a passion project um and an entrepreneurial venture and okay. um kind of in in connection but not as a career um mm. in internally how i how i view it um it's a passion project in that i love making things that impact people in some way um and i love the process of putting pen to paper and you know sitting in front of a camera and really having to understand what it is that you're saying and believe what you're saying and be willing to be wrong or hear how you might be more right. Um, I think that's a really cool process that, that I love and, it, and it's also fun from just like the perspective of like filming videos and editing them and whatever. like it's a, it's a fun thing that I enjoy doing. Um, is it something that I'm passionate about enough to do every single day and that I, I jump out of bed thinking about not, (laughs) not necessarily. Right. Um, and, and I, I think that was an interesting realization for me, um, was that it, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, like, I think there's this, um, as soon as you're successful on social media, there's like this idea that, well, you have to make that your career. And like, why wouldn't you just love to get up and you know film and do this and do that and it's like there is a romance to it um that dies off and you have a yeah. honeymoon phase where you're like oh this is amazing this is the greatest thing ever um but <laughs> but you talk to anyone who's been doing youtube or social media for a long time um and it it's a job you know it's hard um yeah. and it, it's i i don't want to overstate you know, that it's hard. Like it's, it's not the hardest job in the world by any means. Um, But when you're a young person, you're deciding what you want to do with your life and you're committing many hours a week to something. Um, I think committing on just like the assumption that this is a great job is a little bit foolish. Um, And I think there's just so much more for me to explore before I, before I settle on that.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe settling is never, never the case. I mean, uh i think the idea of a nomadic career ship is a very very interesting idea to me as well where uh you never really do settle on one thing uh, even upon retirement for instance but yeah i thank you for these for these perspectives and you know if i may end off with with asking you this uh partially to to maybe speak it into existence partially for to garner social interests but um do you mind alluding maybe to to some? Of the, I I know you mentioned this before about how you were writing something like this, but do you mind maybe referencing some of the <laughs> some of the writing projects that that you're thinking about that that might become real pieces of work, hopefully yeah, in the f- near future? Yeah, I mean the primary one that
0: I actually have like a proposal almost done for. It's funny I got it like ninety percent done and then I put it aside for a year. Um, oh,
1: the ten yeah, the last ten percent is brutal. It's brutal.
0: I think it's also that the idea just felt a little bit unfinished to me. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is, so the book is, it's uh working title is intentional attention and it's about social media and it's about um, a paradigm of, of living with social media, not just, you know, deleting it and not just using it as companies want you to use it. Um, but really figuring out how to live with it. Um and I think there's, I have a unique perspective on that, given that I, uh, first of all, I'm part of the first generation to have grown up on social media, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like, even a few years older than me, um, Facebook wasn't a thing in middle school, really. Like, <laughs> right. you know, it's it's funny to think about, but it was such, such an integral part to my middle school experience, at least, you know, like for TBH, whatever.
1: Um, right, right. Yeah.
0: So I think that's part of it. I think the fact that I make a career on social media is part of it. Um, and I've also really seen um, seen some of the lows that social media can bring. Um, and I've 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 dove. I'm not you know a, a, a professor as a psychologist. I, I I don't have the academic credentials. Right. I'm a junior in college, um, but I, I know enough of the literature I think to um, to represent it pretty fairly. Um, so that's kind of that's, that's the, the major writing project that I think would be just a valuable thing to put out into the world. Um, and, and, and was a valuable thing when I was writing it. So I've been playing with the idea of bringing that back now. I think the ideas have matured a bit in my mind. I think actually like taking a year, uh, of not touching it was a really good thing for me. Um, I, I, I do that with a lot of projects actually. Not necessarily a year, but I'll start something and then <laughs> right. like let it sit for a month or a few weeks, um, just to let those ideas ruminate. Because you get really excited about ideas sometimes, and you just like run with it because you're like, oh, this is so cool, this is exciting, and then you you look back on it um, and you realize you got a little bit carried away, a little bit overexcited, and. Mm-hmm uh i think it's good to to have that sober second look at it yourself and to to give yourself some more time to really let those ideas sit before you before you pursue it so yeah i might try and do that i might try and you know work out a deal um and become become an author that'd be pretty cool
1: thanks for listening to another episode of humans of harvard college podcast i'm your host david chen this podcast was produced by Mira Becker and Chelsea Guo, graphic design by Mei-Yi Yan, and music by Alex Yoon. Special thanks to John for being a great guest and the Humans of Harvard College Organization. Go drop a follow on their Instagram, at HarvardHumans. If you want to see more of John's work, they are linked in the podcast description. We'll see you next time.